take our kind of 3D bridge, you know, the spirituality, the transcendental, sort of transcendental uh, values, uh, rhetoric, etc. Uh, but I want to take that from the point of view of thinking about culture and the, the shifts um, from the rise of um, a kind of, well, I'll take a Christian pre-modern worldview, we've got modernism, postmodernism and the new phenomenon of meta-modernism. And they're not, um, although they arise in historical sequence, they don't then, you know, each replace the other. Because obviously, you know, there are still people today, like myself, who are pre-modernists. Uh, there are still people uh, like Richard Dawkins who are modernists. There are still people who are post-modernists, uh, and so on. This is uh, a work of art. Uh, uh, photoed here by the uh, British artist Damien uh, uh, Hurst. Well, let's go through this very briefly because you should hopefully be having this uh, well lodged in, in your memories by now about spirituality as a way of life that combines your assumptions and attitudes and actions or your head and heart and hands. But I uh, want to add on to this the suggestion. You know, I've mentioned a few times that spiritualities are generally meant to kind of bring you together, to bring integration to your character and personality. Um, these three uh, elements of the self are kind of meant to work together in harmony, uh, that we have an internalization of these assumptions and attitudes and, and actions uh, that become bit habitual in our life and so on, that, that leads to a virtuous spiritual integration. But of course, the opposite is possible. You can get spiritual disintegration, where internalization leads to spiritual disintegration, where uh, your um, assumptions and attitudes and your actions are kind of at variance with one another, and these parts of your spirituality are pulling you apart. Augustine, in his Confessions, in the very famous uh, autobiographical book, the Confessions, he said, My sin was this, but I looked for pleasure, beauty, and truth, not in him, in God, but in myself and his other creatures, and the search led me instead to pain, confusion, and error. You're saying I was trying to fulfill those desires that, that we talked about in one of the previous talks as well, those spiritual capacities that desire truth and goodness and beauty. Uh, but instead of finding their true source, God, I was looking to get fulfillment for those things from God's creatures and myself. And that won't work. Uh, ultimately, that caused me confusion and pain and it, and it was disintegrative, spiritually speaking. Uh, I've kind of um, written a paper which you'll find in this book, but also free online at my website, at Theophilus, um, where I looked at uh, pre-modernism and modernism and post-modernism, and basically argued that the more consistently one holds to and works out the implications of a non-monotheistic worldview, 
a worldview that doesn't have belief in God at its core, the greater the disintegrative effect upon one's spirituality becomes, and that you can see that in, in culture. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's the opposite of uh, wholeness, pulling you together. Disintegrate would be like falling apart, pulling you apart. Um, if, if you put an aspirin into a glass of water, it disintegrates, falls apart. Excellent, thank you. Because a culture, when you think, you know, when you think about spirituality at a kind of individual level, you know, I have this spirituality, they have that spirituality. Then you say, well, we, you know, all have slightly different, no doubt, Christian spirituality. But what about culture? Culture is a kind of corporate spirituality. It's a set of shared assumptions and attitudes and ways of acting. Um, a set of uh, shared spirituality that gets expressed in its artistic traditions, and I mean that very broadly, not just um, the art. When we were talking about the medieval university and the way their master of arts degree included astronomy, <laughs> and so it's like things that we we do with stuff we think we know, and we produce things, we produce institutions and buildings and films and poems and all sorts of things. Uh, and those things that we produce reflect our spirituality and at a corporate level reflect a, a, a culture's shared sense of spirituality. So, yeah, you all know in um, you know, Snow White, when the evil queen goes up to the mirror and like, who is the, the most beautiful of them all? And the mirror gives her a reply that she doesn't, doesn't like. Let me take this as a sort of uh, image of what we're doing here, that once upon a time we looked into the pre-modern kind of worldview mirror, kind of reflecting our view of ourselves back to us, and we asked the question, who is the fairest of them all? And that pre-modern mirror said something like this, God is the fairest of them all. Uh, God is the, the unsurpassably beautiful being who created the cosmos and made humans in his image, only a little lower than the angels. So this kind of pre-modern, or you might want to call it kind of Abrahamic cultural view, celebrates the existence of these objective, transcendent values, things we discover in reality about truth and goodness and beauty. It's what philosophers call axiology, it's theory of value. That worldview believes in a, a cosmos, an ordered beauty of material and immaterial, non-material realities, uh, like angels, God, uh, created by a transcendent God. That's in philosophical terms the, the ontology of that worldview, its view of what kind of things are real. And it assumed that humans could have and communicate knowledge of values and what is real, of the cosmos, of God, of angels. That's uh, that worldview's theory of knowledge. It's epistemology in philosophical terms. So it has its, a worldview has these three very core 
certain assumptions about what's valuable, you know, what is valued, and what things are valuable, what is real, and is there knowledge? And so, what is it? How do we get knowledge of the things that are real and the things that are valuable? Uh, Leonardo da Vinci's uh, painting of John the Baptist here, pointing up to the transcendent light revealing from heaven. Now, um, here's an interesting quote from the Danish economist and philosopher Lean Rachel Anderson, who says, big problem with this, of course, is that the, the pre-modern cultural tone, as she calls it, is the source of fundamentalism and authoritarianism and totalitarianism and institutionalized violence and torture and oppression and persecution of minorities and free thinkers and violent enforcement of obedient inconformity and the creation of order out of chaos through patriarchy and dogmatism and narrow-mindedness. So she's somewhat wary about people like me who want to say I think a pre-modern worldview is a good thing because she kind of hears by that I want to uh, go back to the patriarchy and burning people at the stake who disagree with me right? like they did down the road in Oxford but of course I don't think that I'm doing that at all I certainly don't want to do that I want to be heard that I'm not wanting to do that um, Indeed, this quote is a kind of cherry-picking, um, just a focusing on the things that kind of backs up what she wants to say. Um, to recommend the basic ontology, axiology, and epistemology, the basic ideas about value and what is real and how do we know stuff from a pre-modern worldview does not mean I also want to advocate burning people at the stake and being narrow-minded and being anti-feminist and, and, and. Indeed, at least some of these pre-modern assumptions that we've talked about, I think, are required for a robust critique of exactly these ills. Because you want to be able to say, these things are, objectively speaking, bad. That you, objectively speaking, should not and that that is something that we know and can communicate to one another. Because if, you're, if you don't think you can say those things, then what's she complaining about? <laughs> right? So she needs some of these pre-modern values in order to make that critique of the wider kind of things that pre-modern people have done in the past. But here's another thing that pre-modern people have done in the past, something that kind of reflects their pre-modern culture. Uh, this is Salisbury Cathedral here in England, one of the finest medieval buildings in the country. It has uh, the tallest cathedral spire in the country, and I think it's the, probably the tallest in Europe. Um, the kind of building, again, where people took decades and decades and decades and decades and decades and decades and decades, and decades to just build this astonishing expression of their spirituality. 
David Levinson's Gothic cathedrals, his cathedrals in the Gothic style, are some of the crowning achievements of Western architecture. Every archway, every decoration has meaning and purpose, and that meaning and purpose is related to the Christian spiritual pre-modern worldview of the builders. This is the the choir stalls in Salisbury Cathedral. Um, The church has always been at the cutting edge of presentation technology. Not only do you have stereophonic sound here, because you split the choir into two halves, so you have stereo sound, they would quite often put uh, singers up in the roof space, around the roof space, to kind of get 5.1 surround sound. (laughs) Uh, You have uh, full colour visual display units, stained glass windows, but that was the cutting edge IT equipment of the era, right? Emmanuel Paparella, but the monk's commitment to reading, writing and education laid the foundation for European universities. And we've seen how closely the first colleges in, in Oxford were to basically being a monastery. Cloister and all. Church Uh, The Indian philosopher Vishal Mangawadi says that the scientific perspective flowered in Europe as an outworking of medieval biblical theology nurtured by the church. That what we think of as modern science, experimental science of the kind of stuff that Galileo and Newton and so on, uh, Faraday engaged in, comes out of the Christian tradition and indeed the, the cathedral monastery tradition. Here's another interesting aspect of uh, high tech in Salisbury Cathedral. This is uh, the Salisbury Cathedral clock, which is thought to date from about 1386, but from the 14th century. It's thought to be one of the oldest working clocks uh, in the world. to other reflections, other, other worldviews. Let me just show you this uh, modern example of Christian pre-modern worldview expressed in art. Uh, on the right here we have an art by the Japanese Christian painter Makoto uh, um, Fujimura. Uh, this is painting Grace Foretold. Uh, in which he uses uh, gold and uh, precious gems ground up in the paint and so on that he paints with in an you know, Eastern tradition of painting. Uh, and some music from the band Iona. I played you a track earlier in the week from Dave Bainbridge, who was the, like, uh, the, the founder of Iona, the guitar player and pianist. And this is a track from their last album, um, uh, Extract, Just being Cross. They like long tracks. But I'll just play you a short extract, in case that's not your cup of tea. Um, But I think the words here are a really good expression of the kind of realistic Christian view of reality here and now. And and just meditate upon uh, the words, the music, the art here for a couple of minutes before we move on. I hope you can kind of grasp that this is art produced by people who believe that there's something real 
that's valuable, um, that is true, that can be communicated, that's worth communicating, uh, that is beautiful, and is trying in you know, different uh, media, uh, basically lyrics of poetry, music, art, to uh, express that and communicate that, because it's not just a set of ideas up here, it's about how we live life and experience the world here and now. If we had time for group work, we could, we could think about you know, what is this art saying about truth and goodness and beauty, but I'll leave that for you to meditate on. And then one day, culture turned its back on God and looked into the modernist worldview mirror and asked, who is the fairest of them all? And the modernist mirror said something like this. Well, according to science, which is the only way to know anything, man, and of course the earliest modernist would have said man, uh, is the fairest of them all. Although an unverifiable term like fair is merely an expression of emotion. The most, man is the most rational being be generated by the blind watchmaker of neo-Darwinian evolution, a child of mother nature who will soon come of age and reject the childish superstitions of religion. That's kind of the modernist outlook on things, yeah? You recognise that. Their folks in their white coats are the new priests of culture. Here's an atheist philosopher, Alex Rosenberg, on how we know, according to this view, that science is the only way to know anything, a view called scientism. He says, we trust science as the only way to acquire knowledge. But that scientific demand, it's basically the demand that, to count as rational, every belief, every rational belief must be justified by scientific, which means empirical evidence. You've got to have some evidence for what you believe. But that's self-contradictory, because that assertion itself can't be justified by scientific empirical evidence. What is the, the scientific evidence that Alex Rosenberg's statement is true? There isn't any. And it entails an infinite regress that can't be satisfied because if, in order for this belief to be rational, I've got to have scientific evidence for it. This A and the evidence B. But how do I really know that this evidence is true and it really supports belief in A? Well, I, I, I can't hold those beliefs rationally unless I've got some evidence for them. That's C. But how do I know that C is true and really does support Call that D, call that E, call that F, call that. Keep going as long as you like. There's no end to that train. Indeed, it's also open to obvious counter example. Our knowledge of metaphysical truths, of, say, uh, the truths of logic. You need the truths of logic in order to argue in science, but you can't know logic through doing science. They're not empirical discoveries or hypotheses that can be verified or falsified by empirical data or, you know, or moral knowledge. The Holocaust was wrong, not something we know through science. 
uh, aesthetic knowledge. Uh, rainbows are beautiful. So, you know, okay, coffee exists. There's certainly an empirical element to this. Uh, pleasure in drinking coffee exists. We have to rely on for my self-report of my mental experience. How does that fit in a materialist worldview? That's tricky. Uh, enjoying coffee is good. That doesn't fit in the modernist box. And this is a beautiful cup. Doesn't fit in the modernist box. But I think all of those are true. And I think it's perfectly reasonable for me to think that they're true. I think that's so much the worse for that kind of scientific theory of knowledge. Nancy Piercy, very good to her, saving me an uh, She points out that the strict separation of facts and values, this divide between facts and values, is the key to unlocking the history of the modern Western mind. People have always known there's a, a distinction, a difference between statements about is, what is the case, and statements about what ought to be the case. Uh, between descriptive statements and normative statements. In earlier ages, however, in pre-modern ages, uh, people thought that both types of statement dealt with questions of truth. If you made a <coughs> about what someone ought to do, that statement was either true or false. But within a modernist worldview, if you make a moral statement about what someone ought to do, that the modernist will either say, that's meaningless, it's neither true nor false, it just doesn't mean anything, or it's, it's, it's false because all moral views are false. The opposite, saying the opposite would also be false. Here's Alex Rosenberg's summary of this kind of entire world view. It's a really nice expression of a kind of hard-nosed atheist worldview. So is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? What physics says it is? What's the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto, i.e. there is none. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Are you kidding? Is there free will? Not a chance. What happens when we die? Well, everything pretty much goes on as before, except us. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. So the individual human life is meaningless, without purpose, without ultimate moral value. We need to face the fact that nihilism is true. And if this seems hard to take, there's always Prozac, which is a drug that you give to people who have chemical depression. They say, yep, this is depressing, but it's true, so deal with it. And how, how do you deal with it? Well, you can't kind of, there's no resources in the world here because it's so depressing. But you're just a chemical machine anyway, so you know, if you find that depressing, take some other chemicals. Change how your brain's working. Yeah. That's a good thing to do sometimes. But you see how that's kind of tying in with his world here. And 
how this gets expressed in culture, uh, just a few examples. This is a uh, famous French uh, architect, modernist architect, uh, nicknamed the Crow, the Corbusier. Uh, French architect, he famously called houses machines to live in. Because if people are basically machines and they need somewhere to live, the machine people need machine places to live, right? Houses are machines to live in. And, you know, famously that was like cutting edge avant garde architecture in the, the mid 1960s, but a series of concrete squares nice rational concrete squares, how we all love to live in them and look at them in our cities, I think not. Even here, there's a kind of concession to, to aesthetics that they put some colour onto the concrete to at least make it not quite so monotonous, which is interesting. But those are in, colour is in his design. But aesthetics doesn't fit really in modernist worldview. But machines to live in. Or the Blood and uh, Bones song by uh, Stuart John Wollstonehome. Uh, he went to a so-called Body Works exhibition where people who had donated their bodies to science uh, had, uh, you know, they preserved the bodies uh, chemically and had displays of cadavers doing various everyday things like playing a game of cards or whatever. You know, and after walking around this exhibition, and, and kind of making him think about, well, what, what is a person? What is a person within a modernist worldview? Uh, here's the, the song um, that he wrote. And then I fade out again because he carries on. And at the end of the song, he appropriates the religious language of the Requiem Mass and sings Requiem Eternum, Requiem Eternum, for, for the death of the pre-modern idea that people are more than machines that we have a soul, that we have free will, that we have value. And, and keeps coming back in that chorus. It seems to me that there's something more. It seems to me that there's something more than meets the eye. Something more than just this life that we're living. But without a soul, we have nothing more than blood and bones. Right. It seems to me that there's more, but the modernist worldview the whole culture is telling me, no, you're just that. Deal with it. That makes you depressed, take some Prozac. And there's a, a kind of raw, honest expression of that. You can kind of feel that angst in the music. And then one day, we looked into the post-modernist worldview mirror and asked, who is the fairest of them all? And the postmodernists, who are basically just a deeper, even more nihilistic form of modernist, said something like this Well, road words only mean whatever they mean to you. I'd say if I can let my, get my colleagues to let me get away with saying that I am the fairest of them all, then I am the fairest of them all. <coughs> After all, values are merely subjective concepts programmed into the human animal by the blind watchmaker of evolution, which only cares about what works, which doesn't care about truth, any more than it cares about goodness or beauty. Why should we care about truth? 
We must keep faith with Darwin and admit that all we can know is the subjective meaning of our own words. I'm based that on a series of quotes from postmodernist thinkers. You see what they're saying? We've got to keep faith with Darwin, which is you know, classic modernism. The modernists said, okay, we want scientific truth and our naturalistic worldview and so on, but we get rid of goodness and beauty because those don't fit. But the postmodernists say, hang on a minute, if you are the product of this blind watchmaker with no purpose, no intention, how, how come you trust your mind to tell you the truth about anything? Beyond yourself, your use of words, and this postmodern focus on just how we get people to get us away with using language in power games. So, as uh, Christian philosopher uh, Doug Groothouse says, uh, postmodernism is so often presented as a radical departure from modernism that it's easy to miss the insight that postmodernism is, in many ways, modernism gone to seed. Modernism carried to its logical conclusion and inevitable demise. And here's some expressions culturally of postmodernism. Here's the M2 building in Tokyo by Kengo Kuma from 1991. It's an automobile showroom. You wouldn't really guess that from looking at it. Uh, but Note the, the giant classical Greek column holding up nothing uh, in the middle of it. Uh, there's not a sense of uh, coherence, there's a sense of what well, we can just kind of play around. Let's stick different interesting things from different cultures together. Um, we just have this kind of uh, ironic kind of play with reality. Uh, this is back to the picture we had at the beginning, that, that photo of the divers uh, discovering these leftovers, uh, Hydra and Kale, uh, from the exhibition Treasures from the Wreck of the Unbelievable. Here the, the divers discovering the sunken wreck of these things. And here they have uh, put them on display in the museum, Hydra and Kale uh, fighting each other. And uh, here's uh, cleaned up replicas of what they uh, would have originally looked like uh, when they were never made, because these are all pieces of art made and then sunk in the ocean by Damien Hurst. And you could also kind of, if you know about mythology, you know that Kali is a goddess figure from Indian worldview mythology, and the Hydra, the many-headed serpent. It's from Greek mythology. <laughs> but we're just kind of playing around because, well, that's all we can really left to do when there's no kind of truth about what happened in the past. You think you can get at the truth about, you know, which mythological figure belongs to which pantheon of thought and so on. That would require thinking that we can actually do history and go to the past and things. We can't. Let's just have fun in the present with whatever takes our fancy. Whatever 
sometimes hard to say, but Nietzsche, back in the 19th century, said truths are illusions which we have forgotten are illusions. They are metaphors that have become worn out. The greatest recent event that God is dead, then, turning our back on pre-modernism, God is dead, that the belief in the Christian God has become unbelievable is already beginning to cast its first shadows over Europe. Some ancient and profound trust has been turned to doubt. And if you want a short one-sentence summary of postmodernism, trust has been turned to doubt. I don't think you can surpass. He says, how much must collapse now that faith has been undermined? For example, the whole of our European morality which we inherited from the Judeo-Christian tradition. And let me read to you um, a slightly shortened version of perhaps Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's um, most famous passage from his most famous work, uh, Joyful Wisdom, The Parable of the Madman. Have you ever heard The Parable of the Madman by Nietzsche before? Yeah. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. Whilst many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Where is God? he cried. I'll tell you. We've killed him, you and I. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What are we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Where is it moving now? Are we not plunging continually? Uh, backwards, sideways, forwards, in all directions. Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? God's too decomposed. God is dead. God remains dead and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves? The murderer of all murderers. Well, today it's interesting to observe that in the last kind of 20 years or so, there's been this movement of people saying we need to find a post-postmodern worldview, or many people call it a meta-modern worldview. We are so over all this modernist, scientistic worldview stuff, and we are so over with this postmodern, just deconstruct everything 
worldview. We need a foundation that we can build culture and society on in a way that helps people to flourish. But we are really sceptical about the idea of just going back to pre-modernism because that basically means patriarchy and burning people at the stake and being narrow-minded and not thinking about anything. Which is kind of the cultural propaganda of modernism. <laughs> Cultural theorist uh, Timotheus Vermeulen and philosopher Robert van der Acker say metamodernism oscillates like a clock, oscillates between a modern enthusiasm and a postmodern irony, between hope and melancholy. Two other cultural theorists, uh, Linda Sorello and Greg Dunbar from America, say metamodernist works engage the conflicts between modernist conviction and postmodern relativism, in part by embodying an aesthetic that braids, weaves together the various epistemic theory of knowledge perspectives with an emphasis on felt experience. You, anyone come across the cartoon series of Rick and Morty? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So here's a slide from Rick and Morty and. Um, Morty is, uh, 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 I haven't watched the, the thing, I, just for these purposes, I, I found this illustration. But um, the kid is saying to his big sister, nobody exists on purpose, nobody belongs anywhere, everybody's going to die. And it sounds like a classic expression of, of modernism. I mean, here's Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist philosopher the 20th century saying every existing thing is born without reason, prolongs itself out of weakness and dies by chance. <laughs> Sounds like you're saying pretty much a summary of that modernist view on human existence. But it's more complicated than that. I'm a version of your brother you can trust. You can trust when he says don't run away from your problems. She's obviously found out that she was an accident. Nobody exists on purpose. Nobody belongs anywhere. Everyone's going to die. Come watch TV. And in a postmodern cartoon, in an episode of The Simpsons, that come watch TV would have been a kind of ironic, hey, what, what can you do? Come watch TV? Yeah, like. But here, the way it's played the way it's acted, the music choice of that, that kind of nostalgic, sympathetic, warm music behind the story is telling you, you can, he really means this. You should take this seriously. This is a brother wanting his sister not to run away and leave him, but to stay with him and to keep hold of this relationship because it means something to him. And yet, we live in this multiverse, and he journeys through the multiverse, and in this one, he happened to have died in some other, he made a mistake, he killed an entire universe, and he came to this one, and he's, he's choosing to live here, and nobody exists in purpose, and nobody wants to here, and we're all going to die. So, you know, it's making modernist commitments, and then there's this kind of postmodern sense of, well, any reality that you want you can find out there somewhere. There's not just the truth that you can kind of get at. Just kind of pick, choose your own reality. 
but there's this metamodern emphasis on, yes, I'm going to affirm all of that, but I want to kind of go beyond it by actually also affirming trust and personal perspective. We need to take people and relationship and flourishing the community seriously. And it's trying to do all of that at the same time. It's trying to go beyond the modernist and the postmodernist. According to Dembo again, he says, the essence of metamodernism is a conscious or un unconscious motivation to protect the solidity of felt experience against the scientific reductionism, with nothing more than blood and bones, of the modernist perspective, and against the ironic detachment, uh, who can know what's true, it's all just paragames and we've got as our words, of the postmodern sensibility. Wants to protect humanness and trust. But at the same time as affirming all of the things that undermine it. I think a really good example of this, what I'm going to call hollow metamodernism, uh, is have you seen the, the film Everything Everywhere All at Once? Won a bunch of Oscars in this year's Oscar including like Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, etc, uh, etc. Et uh, it's a kind of multiverse story uh, about an immigrant family in America and it's kind of using that multiverse idea as a kind of analogy for the immigrant experience, a clash of cultures and so on. Um, you don't really need to know much more about the, the plot than is kind of summarised in this um, review of the film. Uh, by the critic Callum Russell. And he talks about nicely. He says, refusing to deny nihilism outright, he does affirm that nihilism is true. Everything, everywhere, all at once argues that the feeling of worthlessness and apathy that can come with the philosophical concept can be combated by embracing absurdity and finding empathy in this shared mortal connection, this connection between people. We find a sense of meaning and so on. He says, in such a meaningless universe, the love that Evelyn shares with her daughter and husband is the source of true meaning. And meaningless universe, source of true meaning. Uh, it's confusing objectively meaningless universe with a, I have a subjective feeling of meaning that can't be an accurate reflection of reality because I'm also affirming that reality actually is meaningless. And my subjective sense of meaning, of course, is meaningless. But in such a meaningless universe, the love and shares with the daughter and husband is the source of true meaning, finding mutual understanding and acceptance in their shared experience of the absurd nihilism of modern life. I call it hollow because it's, a, I don't know if you have this um, metaphor, this figure of speech in Norwegian or something like it, but we would talk about uh, trying to have your cake and eat it. But you can't, you can't have it both ways. You're kind of trying to have it both ways. You're trying to have your cake and eat it. Well, if you eat your cake, you can't have it as well. And so this is, I think, 
trying to transcend modernism and postmodernism. I think it's great to try and affirm the things that it's affirming, but I think it's hollow because it, it's trying to have its cake and eat it. Some metamodern attempts to protect that felt experience against modernism and postmodernism, they're actually incoherent. Um, it's an attempt to have it both ways. But there are these other voices in the metamodern, postmodern movement that don't, don't, I think, fall into this hollow version. Um, Timotheus Vermillion describes metamodernism as an artistic response to what he calls a combination of a postmodern, he talks about a claustrophobia of the chest, a kind of constriction of what it is to be human. Right? Uh, the perception of a, a knocking sound from an unknown source that could possibly be something out there. Maybe it's not, but maybe it is. Maybe there's something more than the modernist, his modernist worldviews will give us. Scottish philosopher Jonathan Rowson, uh, he says, Metamodeling is, is called for because we need to wake up to being in this time between worlds, between cultures, where people are looking for something more, but they haven't really settled on what that is. Culture is in a state of flux at the moment. He says, we're not going to go back to the pre-modern religion. Well, maybe some people will, and why not? And, you know, we're, but we're not going to do that, he says. But nor are we going to stay stuck in a kind of flatland postmodern context where the notion of the sacred struggles to be heard, where arguably there's a meaning crisis. We have to question the entire meaning and purpose of life. And it's fascinating to see secular voices in culture <laughs> saying the same sort of thing that I've been you know, saying in books. I wrote a book uh, back in like 1990, uh, 2000 kind of era. Uh, I wish I could believe in meaning in the, in the early 21st century. Rawson talks of the mystic beyond and affirms modernity arguably severed the connection between the good, the true, and the beautiful. Yeah, it did. You're right. It broke them apart. So you have a scientific truth severed from the ethics and aesthetics of the good and the beautiful. Yes, yes, preach it, brother. And one of the things metamodernism has to do is take the responsibility of bringing these things together. The true, the good, the beautiful. Bring them together in our lives. Talking about spirituality. The truth that I'd be looking for is one that contains goodness and beauty as a kind of integral part of it. I know who he's talking about. <laughs> and he will find him at the very heart and core and foundation of the pre-modern Abrahamic worldview. But he hasn't quite clicked with that yet. I hope that one day he will. So this hungry metamodernism will open a new cultural openness. I've just started reading this book, uh, A Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. Uh, by Justin Bryley. And I think to successfully protect the solidity of felt experience, to escape that postmodern 
claustrophobia of the chest, to, to free ourselves to respond to that perceived knocking of transcendent reality and recover the connection between the good and the good and the beautiful, you can't go the hollow metamodern way. You've got to reject both postmodernism, uh, nihilism, and the modernistic roots of that postmodern nihilism. I would argue that the best way to do that is to go back to those core affirmations of a pre-modern worldview. And what an exciting cultural moment to live in when people are saying, yeah, we need to reopen the question of the whole meaning and purpose of life and put truth and goodness and beauty back together again. And what a wonderful good news, gospel, we have to offer our culture as it tries to emerge from the, the swamp spawned of postmodernism and the nihilistic modernist roots of that sour spawn. Amen. Amen. Amen.